cartoon a while ago, and there's a stage, and there's three people looking at the stage, bright spotlight of a person sitting meditating. And the show is called, So You Think You Can Meditate. Like, So You Think You Can Dance. So at the end of the retreat, we'll have a stage and we'll hook your mind up to some neuroscience fMRI imaging and track your progress of how boundless your loving-kindness practice is. No, we won't. Just kidding. <laughs> Five years we will, but not now. <laughs> so you've been here for almost 24 hours. Congratulations for still being here. Congratulations for uh, persevering with your practice. The, all those dizzying expectations and fantasies about how your retreat was going to be and how everybody else thought your retreat was going to be, that you'll be just floating on clouds of love and kindness and peace. Come to a bit of a shattering halt sometimes on the first day. <laughs> so, oh God, what have I got myself into? Six more days of this. Oh no. Or not. Maybe some of you are having a very delightful time, surprisingly delightful time. Maybe you thought it was going to be really hard, impossible to be silent, and suddenly you're finding it really easy and you're loving the nature and the, the community and the the altar and, and being with that intimacy with yourself. Or everything in between, probably. You know, and maybe you've had both of those spectrums. One minute you love it, then you have a really hard, painful meditation, you hate it, you want to go home, and on it goes. So our, our job is simply to show up, to be present for the performance. Practice, practice, practice. What? For the performance of life in this moment and every moment the imminence of our experience. And today we've been mostly cultivating the jewel of awareness through mindfulness practice. Very foundational, essential quality uh, facility in our experience and in the practice. And why do we practice mindfulness? Why do we cultivate awareness? And what does that do, cultivating awareness? Hmm? What have you seen? Anybody? What have you noticed? Cultivating awareness. What is it? What, what, what happens? Well, hopefully we get more present. <laughs> we, we start to notice what's here. We start to see all the ways we're not here. The function of mindfulness in my understanding and the teachings is it illuminates, it reveals. It illuminates our experience. It illuminates the nature of reality. Simple attending to breath and body and phenomena over time reveals you know, a whole dimension of experience that we didn't notice before. And of course, on the, in the cloister of retreat, we have that precious opportunity to really refine that attention 
and to look at what is this awareness? What is this body? What is this thing called heart? What is this thing called life, called being human, called being vulnerable, called being awake? What does that mean in my present visceral moment-to-moment experience? And no doubt, hopefully, the awareness has been revealing lots of different things for you. Like, I'm really not very mindful. (laughs) I'm really not present that much. I'm spaced out a lot. Anybody been thinking? I asked that earlier. Anybody continue to think today? Noticing a lot of thoughts, distractions, fears, worries, anxieties, patterns, habits, right? Yeah, it reveals, it illuminates, that is the point. So we can understand, because without that awareness we can't understand, without the understanding we can't uh, see where we're caught, where we're reacting, where we're creating our own suffering. And we can also see the doorways and opportunities to find well-being. So I like to read this piece uh, from... Archbishop Fenelon, who obviously was a contemplative, um, and he's making this reference to light as what grows on the path, and it's really a metaphor for what happens with awareness and meditation. He says, as the light increases, as, as awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our hearts a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. I wouldn't quite go that far, but you know, medieval, anyway. We never could have believed that we'd harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. While our faults diminish, the light by which we see them is brighter. And we may be filled with horror, but bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. So we may see all kinds of neuroses and reactivities and fears and the ways that we constrict and grasp and hold on. But that, that is good news, because if we see it, we have a possibility to liberate it with awareness, with kindness, with letting go, all kinds of things. As Spring mentioned earlier, what, one of the main things I'm going to be speaking to tonight is one thing that gets revealed or illuminated in, in practice and in, with awareness is what interferes with peace. And one of the main interferences with our well-being is our critical mind. It's our judging, critical, self-deprecating, high-standard mind. Anybody knows? Anybody got one of those? You might know someone who's got one of those, perhaps. Yeah. This is from Dwight Moody. who says, I've had more trouble living with myself more than any other person I've ever known. Right? That's sometimes why it's hard to be sitting with ourselves because we have to listen to the tyranny and the litany of uh, that negative critical voice that's very painful. Rest assured that you're in good company. When the Buddha was uh, sitting on his lotus throne, you could say, as he was uh, practicing ardently in the forest to understand the nature of reality and um, what would bring essential freedom, he was assailed by many forces, as we are, including uh, 
the voice of the critic, personified as Mara, this force of unconsciousness, who came to him, as the, as the, the mythology goes, and said to him, as he was really you know, clear, awake, and, and really looking into the nature of experience as we are, and the voice said, who do you think you are? to sit on this throne of enlightenment where all the amazing Buddhas of the past have sat. Who do you think you are to sit here? By what right do you have to sit here? And maybe you've had that voice today. Who do I think I am? Who do I think I'm fooling to think that I'm a meditator? By what right do I have to sit here in the... the, in the beautiful presence of Spirit Rock. Do I deserve to be sitting here? Anybody been feeling that? It can come at times. And the Buddha not uh, engaging uh, with uh, Mara, with this critical uh, aspect of ourselves. He reached down and touched the earth, as I think this Buddha was doing, Bhumaspasha Mudra. And he said, the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness. The fact that I am on this earth, living, breathing on this earth, I have absolute right to be here, to take my place, to uh, be in complete integrity just by the fact that I'm here, human being, on this earth. As do we. We can all touch the earth and say, I am worthy to be here just by the very fact of my existence. And what was interesting after the Buddha's uh, awakenings, um, the voice of Mara continued to come back. You think after awakening, this mythology we have about awakening, that once that happens, everything else is happy ever after, and we go into a spiritual retirement home, and it's all good. But that voice of doubt at times would creep up on it all the way quite close to his death. So it behooves us to pay attention to this voice, to these voices, to these ideas and views and misperceptions. And it will particularly become apparent on on this retreat, in a loving-kindness retreat. Generally, when I teach loving-kindness retreats, I always do a breakout session on the inner critic because it gets so loud. Because here we are trying to wish ourselves well, to be kind, to be loving. And what happens, this practice, as Spring mentioned earlier, is a purification practice. It will bring up anything that's in the way of that boundless heart, including these critical voices, these judgmental voices, this quality of unworthiness. So... um, what are your names for the critic? Well, how do you know, you know, which, you know there's lots of different words. There's, there's the Freud called it the superego. I call it the critic or the judge. Sometimes I call it the bully. Um, anybody, anyone want to shout out names? What, do you, what might you call your, your inner voice? Gremlin. Gremlin, mm-hmm, yeah. The committee. The committee, right. It's not just one voice, it's a whole boardroom, right? Yeah. A lot of different views, right? What else? Other names? My You're my mother. 
It's funny when I, I've, so I just wrote a book called Make Peace With Your Mind. Here it is, hard sell. Da, 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 da. Uh, how mindfulness and compassion can help free you from the inner critic. So I'm, on, I'm in the middle of book tours. I'm giving a lot of lectures and things. And I always ask this question, what are your names for the critic? And I hear, you know, various things. And someone will inevitably say, mom, <laughs> my mother. So thank you for, uh, right? So we, are, we, we inherit these voices from, from you know, significant people in our past, father, mother, church, siblings, other influential figures, teachers, uh, religion. Any other names out there? My favorite is the Itsy Bitsy Shitty Committee. but some also known as the taskmaster, the tyrant, the pusher, the killjoy, um, the inner saboteur, that's one of my favorite ones, sabotaging well-being, right? The destroyer, somebody called it once, and the negator, right? The distorter, right? all these different ways that we have this skewed perception. And the Buddha once said, Whatever, we, whatever the mind conceives is ever other than is so, and that is so true with the critic. Whatever the critic conceives is really mostly distorted and inaccurate. And of course, that critic, as our mind does also, follows us wherever we go. Wherever we go, there it is. Wherever we go, we go to Hawaii, and it's judging us for our surfing or, uh, you know, who knows what in Hawaii, or how we look on the beach with a swimming, bathing costume. And we come to Spirit Rock, and it follows us right into the meditation hall. Anybody notice some judgmental voices today? Well, that wasn't very mindful. <laughs> well, that's not very kind. And you're getting seconds? Really? Is anybody else getting seconds? <laughs> Thirds? Really? <laughs> and you missed a meditation? You slept in? You're such a loser. <laughs> and those carrots were not as good as your, not as nicely chopped as your neighbor's carrots or whatever your job is, you know. And you call that walking meditation? Really? You were so spaced out? Right? You could only count three breaths before you spaced out? If they really knew what I was like, if they really knew what I was thinking, they'd kick me out. <laughs> Anybody like to share what your judge has been saying today? Who are all these people? That's the other way. It goes inside, goes outside. Or what have you heard someone else's judge say? You know. <laughs> yes. Right, if only I'd kept up my practice from when I started. Or if only I'd started practicing earlier. Right? If only I'd done a meta retreat earlier. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Right, it's a complete setup for hopelessness. Because if we 
could have, we would have, but we didn't. We did, we did what we did, and here we are. And how great that we're here now. Other, other thoughts? Yes. What are you doing sitting here when there's so much to be done? Yes, what are you doing here sitting when there's so much to be done, so much suffering in the world? Yeah. What's following your breath and looking at your navel got anything to do with real life? Right, yeah, common one. Yes. Next time I'm going to come well rested so I don't sleep for the first two days. <laughs> that might be a good idea, actually. <laughs> but not you're a terrible person for not being well rested and therefore coming tired, right? which is the implication, which I'll talk about later. So we want to start being mindful of these thoughts because these thoughts lead to a lot of suffering when we listen to them, when we believe them, when we internalize them, when we think it's true. So sometimes they're they're critical thoughts. Otherwise, and sometimes it's just patterns that... It, um, the mind and the critical mind engage in that really don't serve us. For example, this is from Rhymes with Orange, a cartoon strip. Uh, relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. It's a common meditation pastime. Is choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Think about all the people you regularly disappoint. And I add, especially the people who share your last name, right? post-Thanksgiving, probably disappointed some people, didn't come home or whatever. Disregard compliments from people who supposedly love you. So there's a picture of a woman getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. And we have this slanted perception. Negative, well, you know what, in psychology they call a negativity bias, right? Where we're tuned because of our evolutionary biology to, to see what is threatening to what is potentially a problem. And so our mind, our brain, orients towards what's wrong, what's not enough, what's problematic, what's fearful, what's a threat. And that entrenches itself, and that's how we tend to view the world a lot. Not always, not everybody, but it can be uh, very uh, um, prolific. So I want to read something from... A.H. Almas, who's the founder of the Diamond Approach work and someone I've studied with for many, many years. And um, the school has really uh, uh, developed a lot of clarity around the working with the critic. And he writes, the problem is not that we must, that we want to be happy, but that we're going about it in the wrong way. When we really see that we are going about it in the wrong way, we quit. And then life can unfold on its own. We can't make it unfold. We can't quit our rejection, our judgment, our intolerance, but we will quit these patterns only when we completely and totally see what they are doing, that they are hurting us. Right? So that's the, that's the fusion of awareness and kindness. Right? We cult- and that's why we start the day with awareness practice, because it's the awareness that clarifies, that illuminates. Right? Illuminates what? Illuminates what gets, what, what suppresses and blocks the awakened heart, right? including these critical, judgmental, negative perspectives and voices. And it's really why I wrote the book. I, you know, I've been working with people for 20 years now, and I 
see it as the number one source of mental anguish, is the way that we are harsh and cruel and belittling and rejecting of ourselves. Right? There's, there's plenty of suffering in the world, plenty of suffering in life, but the way, the way that we create the most anguish for ourselves seems to be the way that we talk and treat and are harsh uh, with ourselves. Again, not everybody, but most, for a lot of people that I've worked with. <clears throat> and the good news the, the, the practice reveals, that life reveals, is that we have a choice. We are not, just because we may have inherited and developed this voice early in childhood and as we've grown up, we don't have to live under its burden. We don't have to be so persecuted by it. We don't have to believe every thought. And there's a great line from a Sufi poem, Sufi poet uh, Hafez who says, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. But of course we wake up in the morning, we've slept in, we didn't hear the meditation bell, and we have the ingredient of uh, guilt, and then we mix in a little judgment and then we compare ourselves to all those enlightened yogis who are in the meditation hall here and we mix in some more judgment and memories of times we haven't shown up and then we f we have this you know horrible fest of you know feeling like you know crap and then he later in the poem he says we have all the ingredients to turn our existence into joy mix them mix them right so here we're mixing ingredients of what of awareness of kindness of clarity of generosity, of patience, of love. Right? So we, we, we're cultivating this fertile soil so we can have this, uh, this capacity to move through our, our lives and, and, and the world with greater ease, with kindness. <clears throat> so one of my favorite lines um, in, the, um, um, in the tradition is from a third, not a third, sixth Zen patriarch from China, and he wrote, uh, he was talking about awareness, mindfulness, and, and kindness. He said that, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Right? Without awareness, we can't know ourselves, we can't know e each other, right? Awareness, self-awareness is the basis for empathy because the more we understand ourselves, the more we can put ourselves in other shoes. And out of that um, empathic seeing, we can actually generate compassion, kindness, responsiveness. So awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression. When we see clearly, when we see the truth, when we see suffering, the heart wants to respond. It wants to care, it wants to love. So I want to talk a couple of things uh, in this part of the talk. One is how the critic manifests in a more detailed way and how we can work with it. And you will have plenty of opportunity this retreat to work with it. So we hear the critic with words, judgments, shoulds, coulda, wouldas, comparing uh, statements, ideas, views about ourselves. But it also, we also feel it emotionally, right? That, that, that those words land in our body, in our heart, 
It affects our energy. We can often feel collapsed or foggy or dull. We can, you know, have a, we have, can have a bright, lovely meditation and then we remember that we let our friend down before the retreat and they were super disappointed about something. And then suddenly we, we, co- we didn't catch the thought that we're really a terrible friend, but that sewed itself into our psyche and we start to feel suddenly really, you know, kind of bleak and gray and sad and heavy. And we wonder, what's going on? I was feeling really robust and buoyant and then suddenly I'm feeling this sort of heavy lethargy. That's one of the impacts of the critic. It affects all different levels of our being. So we want to be discerning of that. One of the ways it manifests is the sense of what I call the imposter syndrome, right? which affects you know, a good two-thirds of the population, people feeling like they're a fraud. Anybody feel like a fraudulent meditator? <laughs> right? That if people really knew what it was like, you know, in there, you know, we're like, you know, it'd be embarrassing. You know, if we get these screens and we could project all of our thoughts, right, we'd be horrified at what would be broadcast. The mind has no shame and has thoughts and views about ourselves and everybody else. But it leads to this sense of uh, feeling like a fake, feeling like uh, unworthy, fraudulent. Uh, I want to read a little bit from the book briefly. Um, this is a chapter on the imposter syndrome. This is from uh, this is just from some folks uh, who have share a similar uh, experience. Mel Streep, the most Academy Award-nominated actress in history, said in an interview, "Why would anyone want to see me again in a movie? And I don't know how to act anyway. Why am I doing this?" Einstein, towards the end of his life, admitted that he felt like an involuntary swindler. I'm not a writer. I've been finding myself, I've been fooling myself and other people, John Steinbeck wrote in his diary in 1938. Facebook CEO Sheryl Sandberg, very dynamic uh, leader in Silicon Valley, there are still days when I wake up feeling like a fraud. This is very, very common. That we, that we know we go for an interview and we, we, we feel like we have to bluff our way in because if they really knew who I was, what I was like, I wouldn't get the job. Or when you get the job, you fear about getting found out that if they really find out who you are, they, you, you, know, you get shown the door. Okay. You know, one of the net effects of listening to these negative voices over time is we just feel bad. We feel unworthy, we feel small, we feel unlovable, we feel deficient, we feel hopeless. It's not a fun gathering that I want to be in. But it's true, right? I get some nods if you feel like that at times, some of you. So we want to be pay attention. We want we want to we want to discern. One of the ways the critic manifests is uh, standards of perfection. Right. Anybody know anybody who's perfect? Has anybody had the perfect meditation, or the perfect body, or the perfect spouse, or the perfect child? Or the perfect life. I mean, if you go on, if you go on Facebook, it looks like many people have the perfect life. Everyone's happy and shiny and smiley. 
But we know what life is like. I mean, it's beautiful and it's messy and it's complicated and it's painful and it's heart-opening and it's tragic. Right? It's like full catastrophe. One of the main residues that arises from the critic is the, f- the, peren- the pervading sense of not being enough. I'm not mindful enough. I'm not compassionate enough. You know, you come into Buddhist teachings and suddenly there's a whole new bar of things you, you need to measure yourself. You know, I've got to be enlightened. I've got to be spiritual. I've got to be awake. I've got to be mindful. I've got to be compassionate. I've got to be generous. And, you know, there's a whole list of things. And I was thought of, you know, I was struggling enough with just not being enough in my work, but now I'm all these other things I'm not enough in. Easily trigger fuel for the critic. I worked, was working with this company. I do some mindfulness consulting. I was working in a hedge fund. And this, uh, one of the traders had made this really long series of spectacularly successful trades. And he'd made tens of millions of dollars for the company in, in this short space of time. And I was meeting with him in the afternoon expecting to see this very happy, you know, sort of jubilant person. And he looked stressed and anxious. And I said, hey, I heard you, you know, it was a really good day at the office. And he said, yeah, it was good, but I could have, you know, I could, I could have, I should have bought earlier and I could have sold later and I would have made a few more million. <laughs> it's never enough. It's never enough. I, sp- I purposely, so there's a few critic books out there and they're quite thick and not so easy to read. And I purposely wrote this as a thin book because who wants to read a really heavy, thick book on the critic, which is, you know, it's a hard read. So I, so I purposely kept it, you know, slim. And then it arrived in the mail, and I took it out the envelope, and I was sort of like, I was a little underwhelmed, and I just put it on the side, and I just carried on with my email. And and then later I thought, wait a minute, your book's just arrived. This is the big deal. Like, you know, it's not every day you write a book. And I and I looked, and I and I thought, what's? Why am I not feeling so, you know, like, you know, happy? And and the judgment was, it's too thin. (laughs) (laughs) You can never please the critic, right? So don't try, but we do. And all the ways we're not enough, we're not smart enough, we're not young enough, we're not old enough, we're not thin enough, we're not wealthy enough, we're not mm, successful enough, we're not you know, further along the path enough. Right? Anybody heard the, the critic saying, you should be further along at this point in your life. You should be more developed. You should, you know, Great, that's really helpful. <laughs> that might be true, but it actually it's not, because here I am, exactly where I am on the path. Thank you very much. Or we have a sense of regret. The, the critic, which is a, this one of the ways that this unfair um, sparring partner, um, has 20-20 hindsight. And always looks back and says, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you chose that person. I can't believe that you, you know, moved there and it was a disaster. I can't believe that you, you know, you could, you know, and you all have your stories of things. We all can look back and go, oh, I wish I'd seemingly taken that road or chosen that person or, you know, bought that stock or what, whatever, you know. We, we do the best we can. With practice, we learn to trust our innate goodness, that we do the best we can with the resources and information that we have to hand. The critic, however, goes, that's not good enough. 
You should have been perfect then and now. Basically, the, the message that often comes through is it's not okay to be human. It's not okay to have foibles. It's not okay to have a messy life. It's not okay to be complicated, to be vulnerable. Or the message is, you're not doing it right. You're not walking right. You're not breathing right. I mean, it's amazing. We can give ourselves a hard time for our breath. It's just not deep enough. It's not yogic enough. Or whatever. And then sometimes these critical voices uh, take uh, different sides. Sometimes it masquerades as a coaching voice. You know? So, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's, it's 5.30 in the morning or whatever, time, whatever unearthly time we wake up and the bell goes off and this little friendly coaching voice says, you know, it's early, you know, they say it's really good to get a good sleep, so you just let yourself sleep in and then we know we'll plenty of time to meditate today and we'll just hit the snooze button. And then, you, and then you wake up at 7.30, you've missed the sit, you've missed the qigong, you've missed breakfast almost. And then now the other the side of the critic comes, which is a little more wrathful, and says, God, you're such a slob. Like, get a life. I mean, you know, follow through with your commitments. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. And then there's the swing door of the critic that, um, you know, what we, you know, what we, as, as the Buddha said, what we, frequently dwell and ponder upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. If we frequently dwell and ponder upon our faults, our judgments of ourselves or others, that becomes the habit. We become a judgmental person. Is that what we want to cultivate? Is that what we want to be? We may be a judgmental person in this moment because of the habit of following and listening to and cultivating judgments. But we have the power of choice to, to unseat that pattern moment by moment. And the swing door is what goes in goes out, what goes out goes in. If we're busy judging ourselves in the quiet confines of our meditation, you can be guaranteed when we're out walking around, having lunch with people, we'll be judging each other. If we're very judgmental and we take pleasure in judging people, which we seem to do as a, as a species, when we get quietly back to our own, our own self, that judging habit will continue what we strengthen we become, what we, do, what we think we become. So the main, a couple of main points around understanding these critical voices, and there's two or three pieces to this, and this is really an important point. There's a difference between what I'm calling judging and all the other cognitive faculties like discerning, like when we need to discriminate finally about a certain, maybe we're doing some writing or something or running some numbers and we're discriminating about different possibilities or we're assessing or we're evaluating. Right? These are very healthy, necessary tools for living. I'll often give this talk and people say, how would I, I can't give up my judge. How would I make discernments? How would I make decisions? How would I do complicated strategy? That's, we, have, we have great capacity. Our mind is fantastic at doing all these things. We don't need to be uh, having this negative, loaded judge that's also kind of um, uh, filtering and, and negatively coloring that exp experience. Mm -hmm. 
So the so the the, the one, another important distinction with with just a normal thought versus a judging thought. A judging thought has an implication about our worth as a human being. Right? So so for example, at the end of meditation, you might you know just look back and go, oh, you know, what was what happened in that meditation? It seemed like I was quite distracted. I was thinking a lot about you know work, and and I was really it was really hard to focus accurate, you know, helpful assessment. The judge comes in and says, well, that was pathetic. I mean, you're all over the place. I mean, you could barely do anything right. You couldn't focus. And what's the point? I mean, it's just a waste of time. The implication is, is somehow that you're a bad person for that happening. That you're a lesser, lesser person, less worth because you're distracted. So we want to be mindful when we're judging, when we want to see the difference between um, a healthy discerning thought and a judging thought that makes us feel bad, deficient, wrong, stupid, lesser than. So some ways to work with it. So you all look thoroughly depressed now. I've talked with the critic for half an hour. Oh God, I've got this critic and I'm just going to die. The good, you know, the good news is, and I've, the reason why I teach this work is because when people start to pay attention and, and listen to the, 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 the tone, the tone, the way we talk to ourselves, the quality, the words, the energy behind it, we can you know, some often it's just bec- it be, it's become so habitual that we don't even notice it. It's just the way it's just the way my mind is, just the way I talk to myself. But when we actually bring discernment and clarity, then um, we have the chance to unhook. And I've seen people take up this work and really find a lot of space, a lot of freedom from the this from the impact of those voices it's not like they disappear right just like our thoughts don't disappear in meditation but we can find a healthy relationship to them so we're not so burdened by them right? that's the freedom is the is in the attitude the relationship so we first we we start with the practice of mindfulness which is just gives us capacity to know to see oh that's a judgment oh now i'm judging myself for judging now i'm judging myself for judging that i'm judging Oh, judging. Judging is like this. Oh, it feels like this. It feels kind of heavy. It feels mean. You know, one of the most important shifts that had happened for me working with my critic, I was young, I was 20 when I started doing meta practice, 19 when I started doing meta practice, and, and I was in the meta practice one day, I was 20, and I'd done something that was hurtful to somebody, I forget exactly what it happened, and my critic was just assailing me in the meditation, just like this barrage of all the ways I'm not, I'm not a nice person, and instead of listening and being sort of aligned with the critic, I instead shifted, as meditation can do, to how that was feeling. How, what was it like to feel myself talking to myself so cruelly? And it's really painful. Like if we, really, if we shift from telling ourselves that we've done something wrong, that we're bad or stupid, to actually listening to how that lands in the heart, it's painful, it's sore, it's a wound, it's tender. And we want to really be you know, most loving of and protective of our heart. You know, so for example, imagine, so in, my, in the workshops I lead on the critic, I have people write down your f- top five or 10 judgments. You might do that tonight just as an experiment. Because when we read them, we actually have a clearer assessment of them. 
But imagine you gave that list to your best friend and you said, hey, would you just remind me about these things all day like my critic does? You know, just, you know, just follow me around, tell me that was you know, not very nice and that was a bit stupid and that was lazy and that was slobby and that was whatever it says to you. How long would you put up with your friend talking to you like that? Like 10 seconds, like a minute? You'd go like, okay, thank you, I heard it the first time. Don't you tell me 50 times. Thank you, back off, you know. I'm going to take a walk on my own. Go bother somebody else. Right? But we let that voice tyrannize us, don't we? So we bring mindfulness, we bring awareness, we bring clarity, we bring discernment. Mindfulness helps us disidentify. We have a little space, helps us release the thought, helps us not give it so much attention. We want to see how much we believe the thought, how much we listen to it, how much we give it authority. And one of the, one of the, one of the, so there's different ways we can respond to the critic. And so one is mindfulness. We notice it. We see it. We can, we can we name it judging. And sometimes we can also have a retort. And then often what I'll say is, thank you for your opinion. Thank you for your point of view. Because it is a point of view. Right? We believe it's the truth, but it's not. It's just a point of view. It's an opinion about ourselves, about our experience that's usually negative, distorted, biased. So, so if you do write that list of things down, share it with a friend or a spouse or a loved one who knows you really well and, say, and ask them, is this true? And they'll probably say, I imagine most of the time, no. That's not who you are. You're not a bad person. You're not unlovable. You're not you know, a bad friend or whatever the, the messages are. You know, of course we have our stuff and we have our blind spots and we have ways, places we need to work. But that doesn't mean we're a bad, unworthy person. Another really helpful antidote is finding humor. So I just had a book launch party the other day for friends and I bought myself this uh, this, um, barrister's wig from England. You know, these wigs, these long, strained locks that they wear in the in the courts in England. Because when, when I was doing long retreats uh, on the East Coast at IMS, Sister Center to Spirit Rock, I would imagine my critic like that because it was so loud and it would be saying, bad meditator, bad yogi, bad, bad, bad. And I'd, so I'd, I'd dress it up with this wig. <laughs> you know, and it would just help me see the lightness of it. Or you can exaggerate the, the critics. Yeah, you know, like maybe you're giving yourself a hard time because you, you stumbled in the walking meditation and everybody saw. <gasps> and suddenly you're on your case about how unmindful walking practitioner you are. And, and you say, yes, I'm the most unmindful person in the world. Thank you. I'm, I'm, there's nobody walked less mindfully than me. Thank you. And you see, you play with it. You kind of give it some humor. As Wavy Gravy said, if we don't have a sense of humor, it just ain't funny anymore. So we have to find the humor. The humor of the voice telling you to stay in bed and then being a slob for staying in bed or whatever, whichever you know, polarities the, the voice takes. And sometimes you can just, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the danger with the, with the critic is we get into trying to rationalize and justify our goodness. No, I really, really am a good person. I really am. I'm, I'm really do deserve to be here. I've, I've tried so hard, and and we start justifying ourselves. We start rationalizing as we might do if someone's critical with us. 
And the, the, the danger with that, with that pattern is that we've already given, we've already lost the argument because the critic is tenacious and will always find a way to win. And, but more, more importantly, we've given the critic authority. And we want to be re- reclaiming that authority. Right? So we're, we're giving ourselves the authority about our own worth and goodness, not this critical voice. So sometimes I'll just say to my critic, thank you. Or, you're right. Because sometimes it's pointing out something that's true, like, I forgot my mother's birthday last week. You're right, I forgot my mother's birthday. Now I'm not a terrible person for forgetting, but I did forget the birthday. Thank you for reminding me. Don't really need to hear it 20 times, but thank you. So it's like a Tai Chi move, it's like a Qigong move. We just, we just let it flow by. Rather than like, no, 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 I'm a good person. It's like, oh, right, thank you, great. You know, the critic, and this is a whole, I don't have time to go into the, the, the reason why we have the critic, but basically it arose as a self-protective mechanism when we were young. You know, we, we, we come into this world young, vulnerable, impressionable, and you know, in need of love and care. And so we have to figure out how to navigate the intensity of this experience of being human to fit in with the social environment of our family and loved ones and carers and church and community. And so we learn how to shut down all the unwelcome parts of ourselves that are not, that are not accepted in, in our environment. Right? It's a very healthy, necessary part. And we, we, we do that through shaming, right? which is the, the function of the superego is to shut that down so we can optimize love and affection. That gets encased, enshrined, and grows as we, so, so when we're no longer in need of that same affection, that voice still plays up. So whenever we're feeling vulnerable, whenever we feel at risk of losing love or affection or respect or care, we're running late for a meeting at work or we say something and then our spouse is really hurt and angry, the critic is on our case because it, it arises out of the vulnerability. It, it, it's a misguided attempt to protect us from harm, but at this point in the in the game, it's become so removed from that basic um, impulse that it's become more of a destructive than a helpful voice. Does that make sense? So, so you know, the intention might be to, to you know to to protect us in some way, but the the net effect is so much more negative than what it's trying to protect us from. And you know, as we grow, as we mature, we can actually learn to handle the vulnerability and we don't need to be so harsh and critical with ourselves. And then of course, in the context of this retreat, I'd say, I think, aside from awareness, the most powerful force to working with these negative voices is, is, is loving kindness and compassion. The very practice that we're doing all week that's using a similar kind of neural pathway where we're using words in the same way that the critic uses words. May I be well, may I be healthy, may I love myself as I am, may I accept myself just like this, may I, uh, may my heart be full, filled with loving kindness, or whatever your words are. Right? We're supplanting these other words of you're not good enough, you're stupid, you're hopeless, no one likes you, no one loves you, with words of kindness, with intentions of kindness, with expressions of kindness. 
And I feel like, you know, over the years, you know, when I started practice in my early, late teens, my critic was intense. It was harsh. It was critical. It was unforgiving. It was unruly. And over the years, having practiced meta now for 30 years and mindfulness practice for 30 years, I feel the impact of that. I feel the goodness that it's allowed me to access. I see how it's helped me to see myself more clearly, with more love, with more care. And of course, you know, my critic can at times you know, still do its dance and at times I can be uh, you know, affected by it. But the, the, the foundation of kindness that we develop through over and over returning to ourselves with compassion, it's a, it's a powerful, powerful force. Way more powerful than the critic. So over time, we, we, we learn to, to notice the critic. We bring kindness to ourselves, kindness to the pain. We see the vulnerability of the critic. We can thank it for its opinion. We can not listen to it. We generally become disinterested. We hear the voice, that's mm, not true, not relevant. We can inquire into it, see that it's distortion. But mostly it becomes a bit more, we, we have a, a mind more like Teflon rather than Velcro. We, we hear it, it w- washes off. We don't take it seriously. We don't let it become the, the, the view of who we are. So I just want to close with um, just some pointers, a couple of readings of how we might be in in uh, in ways different than the critic. Dear Lord, so far it has been a good day. I haven't lost my temper, shouted at anyone, or forgot something. Amazingly, I have not told any lies, been conceited or selfish, nor have I done anybody any harm. I haven't smoked or even had a drink. Now, if you please, I must get on with my day, but first I must get out of bed this morning. So, I, you know, we need many things, but to summarize how life is beyond the judgment, there's a sense of lightness, there's a sense of courage, and there's a sense of kind-heartedness. So this is a poem I wrote about courage, and it's really an, an antidote or an antithesis to the critic, critic's view. Hibiscus unwind from cloisters and corking in a fragrant display. Anthers and a bash protruding sex to the sky while petals of silk fan out to catch the sun's glance and passing bees. Could I emerge from shadows with that abandon, not cower from the shackles of the past, from old voices telling me to hide my light, conceal my wonders, be seen but not heard, which is to be invisible and a quiet death? Is there anything in this feathered, furry, leafed, winged world that hasn't pride in its magnificence or hides its gifts to the heavens. And so I ask, what light have you kept under some bushel, making this world and yourself a poorer place? So let's sit together for a few moments. And sitting with this sense of your innate goodness, your innate worthiness to be here,
what would it be like to see yourself accurately with all of your goodness, your strengths, your beauty, your uniqueness, your one of a kind, your vast potential, your Buddha nature. And I'll close with a poem that seems very apropos of the work we're doing. If you would grow to your best self, be patient, not demanding, accepting, not condemning, nurturing, not withholding, self-marveling, not belittling, gently guiding, not pushing and punishing. For you are more sensitive than you know. Mankind is tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure agonies, but open fully only to warmth and light. And our need to grow is fragile as a fragrance, dispersed by storms of rill, returning when the storms are still. So accept, respect, attend your sensitivity. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. So thank you for your attention. May you all make peace with your mind and find freedom from your inner critics. Thank you. So we'll have some time for walking and then we'll Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.